Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good evening. Before we begin tonight, I would like to start by simply saying thank you for allowing me to be here with you this week, to be your teammate in this gospel meeting. Appreciate the church here, your elders, your preachers, their families, and just wanted to say thank you for allowing me to come and be a part of this. I've been encouraged by every kind deed, every meal that I've been able to enjoy with many of you, or at least with some, the prayers that have been prayed, the singing we've been led in, and just the time we've been able to enjoy together. Friends that have come to the meeting from a distance to be here with us and area congregations and some who've watched online and haven't been able to be here with us in person. It's just been a blessing to me as a preacher. Preachers desire to encourage from the pulpit, but I have received a great deal of it this week myself. And I just want to say I appreciate it. You and I are in a battle. And sometimes that battle is difficult, especially as it relates to our reading and comprehending the Bible. I don't mean that we can't understand what the Bible says. I believe we can. This is the book that God intended for us to have, and it's been given to us in such a way that we can read and understand it. But we do have a challenge. And one of the challenges with us reading and understanding the Bible is that we're centuries removed from when these things took place. And that's just the reality that we need to accept and to embrace. Doesn't mean it's impossible. It's just challenging. And one of the things that makes Bible reading for us challenging is in being so far removed, we might read ideas into the text like these. Well, of course, people in the first century were faithful Christians. They had no other choice. They had nothing else to do. They had nothing better to do than to pray and read and study their Bibles. And so whether Old or New Testament, when the Bible gives us incidental information about a man or a woman, their families, their jobs, and what they went through, not only is the Holy Spirit intending in those instances to give us factual information, the Bible is true, but more than that, God is trying to tell us that those people worked out their faith and lived their lives under similar circumstances as we have, and as we must. The point that God is making in those instances is whenever you read of anybody in the Bible, whether Old or New Testament, apostle, Christian, whoever it might be, who excelled in faith, we must always appreciate that it came at great cost to them. It was not easy. It never has been easy to live by faith. They were at no advantage that we are in. Cost them greatly. And if we would be the people of faith that they were, if we would learn from their faith and live out ours, It'll come at great personal sacrifice and cost to us as well, but it can be done. This week, we've walked through several lessons and Paul mentioned them. And while I didn't title these lessons with a theme, there was a common thread that ran through every one of them. And it was our relationship in the current time in which we live and being the people that God wants us to be. The thief on the cross, that lesson is designed to say to us, who are we supposed to be in relationship to the cross and our sins? And the thief helps us to see ourselves as we truly are without Jesus. The ministry of God says, who are we in relation to God the Father and all of the things that God is doing for us and to us, though we are trying to serve him? The centurion that encountered Jesus is designed to show us who are we in relation to Jesus and what are our responsibilities toward Jesus Christ, toward our fellow man, and how would he call us to disciple and bring the nations to him 
And the lesson on the church turning the world upside down is to say in our current cultural climate, who are we to be in relationship to the church of Jesus Christ? And tonight we end where we started, but with a different emphasis. Who are we to be in view of heaven itself? If you have your copy of the New Testament, turn to Philippians chapter three. The book of Philippians has been called Paul's epistle of joy. Paul wrote to this church. He loved this congregation, but all things weren't well in Philippi. In chapter three, there are some challenges that the church is facing, and Paul wants to keep them centered, to keep them grounded, to keep them from shifting in any direction that might lead them astray. And so he starts out by reminding them in chapter three and verse one that they can rejoice in the Lord, and he's not ashamed to remind them about that. In verse two, he warns them about false teachers who sort of prowl around like dogs and their false teaching are these spiritual landmines that the Philippians must avoid if they would be the people that God would have them to be. In verse three, he assures them that they, the church of Christ at Philippi, are the true people of God. Regardless of their former Gentile association and affiliation, you are the people of God who worship God in the spirit and put no confidence in the flesh. They're God's people. And though they seem to be infiltrated by outside influences and people that were bringing in doctrines contrary to what we find in the New Testament, Paul says, I want you to keep your eyes front and center and press toward the goal. From verse 12 down through the end of this chapter, Paul tells us not only is he doing this, but he invites the Philippians and us tonight by extension to join in with him as we all try to do the same thing and see ourselves as those who should be in a dead sprint toward heaven. Would you notice the text, Philippians 3, beginning with verse 12? Paul says, not as though I have already attained either already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I have been apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended or laid hold of it, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let as many of us be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything else you be any otherwise minded, God will reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark those which walk as you have us for an example. For many walk of whom I told you in times past and now tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. They mind earthly things. But our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven. From where also we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile or our lowly body that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working by which he's able to subdue all things unto himself. Paul says, press toward the goal. And tonight, what I want us to do is notice five things Paul says every Christian must do if we would make heaven our home in the end. I don't have a printout of everyone's schedule that's in this auditorium tonight, but I would argue if you did have them printed out, everybody's schedule would basically read the same thing at the top. It would say, busy. That's what we are. We're busy. And one of the dangers of being busy, even in good things, is to become distracted. We're pulled in so many different directions. We've got so many appointments to keep, so many dings, so many notifications. And in a busy time, it's tempting. We don't intend to, but it's tempting to forget the goal. I just want in this last lesson to encourage us to remember where the goal is and to press toward it with all the spiritual might within us. Number one tonight, if we were pressed toward the goal, we must first realize that we have not arrived. That's in verse 12. 
Paul says, not as though I have already attained either or already laid hold of it or perfected, but I'm in pursuit of it. I'm following after that. Few people did as much as Paul did as soon as they were immersed like Paul. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 20, as soon as Paul was baptized, the Bible says he began to testify in Damascus in the synagogues that Jesus was Christ. He was in a dead sprint toward heaven the moment he rose out of the baptistry. Few people did what Paul was able to do. And yet in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 and verse 11, he says he wants to know Jesus Christ as if he did and I'm, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and be made like him in his death. Paul said, I've done great things, but there's more to be done. If we were pressed toward the goal, you and I must realize that we have not arrived. Paul was converted, changed, and called to the apostleship, but he was not yet complete. The New Testament says that Christians, though we've been saved from our sins, there's still work to do. God would have us to still press toward the goal. The Philippians, you remember, this church exists because Paul and Silas went to Philippi in Acts 16 as they were ushered that way through the Macedonian call. They might be tempted to view Paul as a spiritual giant of sorts. Paul says, I haven't made it yet. I have not arrived. I'm still hungry. I'm still tenacious. I'm still in pursuit of the very same goal that you are after. I have not attained or arrived And if you and I would not miss heaven, we must drink that same reality. We have not attained. We are not already perfected. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27, he said, after I preached to others, he surrendered all of these privileges that were his on occasion to further his evangelistic efforts. And he says, but I keep my body under subjection, lest that by any means, after I've preached to others, I myself would be a castaway. Paul knew that he could be cast away if he didn't focus on the goal ahead and realize his station in life, which was somebody pressing toward the goal. This is a common theme in the book of Philippians, this dual idea that you and I need to wrestle with, the idea that God is still working on us and in us, but we still have things to do for God. Would you notice this? Go to Philippians chapter one and notice this this dual tension that Paul places throughout the book of God working on people, his people, Christians, but yet Christians are not done. We need to in turn work for God. Look at Philippians chapter one and notice verse six. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will complete it or fulfill it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's God working in us. But notice Philippians 1 in verse 9. He says, I want you to abound more and more. The Philippians have more work to do. In verse 25 of chapter 1, he says, I'm hoping for the furtherance and the joy of your faith. You see the tension? Paul says, you're working, but so is God. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 is a familiar verse that concerns our work for God. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That whether I be present or absent, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, that's our responsibility toward God. But notice what he mentions in the next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. There's the tension. God is working in us and on us. He's not done but neither are we. We must still work for him. In Aesop's famous parable, you know, the tortoise and the hare, there's this mocking that takes place between the two. The hare mocks the tortoise for slothfulness and slowness, and one day the race is set, and as you would imagine and expect, the hare is out in a darting sprint to begin with, and when he gets close enough to the finish line with enough distance between he and the tortoise, he sleeps to take a nap and only awakens to the surprise of the slow tortoise eking across the finish line ahead of him. And we've told that parable. 
to young and old alike to make this point. Slow and steady wins the race, but doesn't it also teach that sleepy and satisfied loses the race? You see, if we don't work at it, if we think we've arrived, we'll miss out. There's more work to be done. In the corporate world, sometimes individuals are made to do further training and personal development. Why would that be the case? It's because corporations know it's either improve yourself or excuse yourself. It's either do better or we're going to have to do without you. We want you to do better. We want you to improve and to stay sharp. And that often takes work. And when we think about the eternal goal of heaven, we have to remember we have an, it's not to say that we can't be sure of our salvation, that we wake up every day unsure if we really do belong to God. That's not the point at all. But it is to say we must remember that we are a workmanship created in Christ Jesus to produce good works. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. One of the problems with patting ourselves on the back prematurely is that we might forget that we need both hands engaged in the battle for Jesus Christ. There's no time for celebration yet. We haven't arrived. There's more work to be done. Think about all of the people in the Bible who almost made it to their destination. They almost made it and then they didn't. Moses was a great leader for 40 years and he almost made it to Canaan. He almost did. Numbers 20 and verse 12 He fell short. He missed it. And Samson was just sure that God's strength would always be with him on a moment's notice like it always had been before until it wasn't. Judges 16 and verse 20. And we say about Peter that he pretty he almost walked on water. I mean, he was close. Matthew 14, 28 through 30 until the wind in the waves. And he was close. He thought he had arrived and then he didn't. And surely Peter knew of his spiritual maturity and his discipleship. And he would never deny Jesus, even if all the others did until the roar of the crowd and the accusations and the slapping of Jesus. And then he froze in a moment's notice. Luke 22, 54 to 62. We have not arrived. May we stay hungry and vigilant and ever press toward the goal, realizing this reality that discipleship is something that takes effort and it takes continual effort. And we must be honest with ourselves. Be careful to fight yourself on this because your mind may try to give you permission to tune out on sermons and classes where you say, this is a rerun. I've heard this one before. And I know this lesson and I know this Bible study, this Bible story. I'm familiar with this narrative. I know how this is going to play out. And in those moments, we must remind ourselves, I'm still engaged in a battle. There's still something else to learn. I have not yet arrived. We must fight the the temptation to rest on our laurels press toward the goal. Paul says, I have not already attained, but I'm pressing toward that end. Now, here's number two. If you and I would press toward the goal, we need to forget the past. In verse 13, Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are before. Paul had a lot of things that he needed to forget in the past. Don't you agree? You can look in Philippians chapter three, and Paul mentioned several. In verses four through eight, He talks about his former pedigree in Judaism, and he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning zeal, he was a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. If there was any righteousness to be found in the law, Paul was blameless. He says, I counted all of these things rubbish or dung that I might win Christ. Paul could have thought about all those things. He forgot them. His persecution of the church 
Galatians 1.13, he says, I formerly persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. Or the stoning of Stephen, all of these things that Paul had formerly done, don't you know Paul needed to forget those things in order to make the progress that he did? He had a past and a rough one. But in pursuing heaven and pressing toward the goal, he needed to do everything within his power to leave those things where they were. Decades after his conversion, he would write to his young protege, Timothy, and he would talk about how blessed he was to be called into the ministry by God. And this is how he describes himself in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 13. He was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, but he obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceedingly abundant upon me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. First Timothy 1, 13 through 15. Paul says that was me, but I forgot those things so that I might press toward the goal. In verse 13, Paul makes an allusion to the Grecian races of his day. This idea of agonizing or straining ahead, forgetting those things which are behind. Some translations have pressing toward the goal, which is before pressing toward the mark that lies ahead. The idea here is as a runner would strain and agonize ahead. And don't you see Paul's imagery? How much would a runner's progress be impeded if he or she was engaged in a race only to look backwards? It wouldn't make any sense. It would be going against the very thing the one was trying to accomplish. In order to make progress ahead, all energy had to be facing forward and giving it everything that they had. And that's what Paul says he did. Many Christians would be of much better use to the kingdom of God if they could just forget the things that God has long forgiven and forgotten things that they've repented of and done what God has asked them to do, and God has forgiven those things. They'd be better off if they could just say, you know what, I've done those things, and God's forgiven those things, and those things are in the past. They're in God's rearview mirror, and so they're mine. God has the best memory of any being that exists, and if God chooses to practice willful amnesia concerning my sin and yours, we don't have our own heart's permission to retain those things and hold on to them. You see, Hebrews 8 and verse 12 God says, I will be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and your iniquities. Will I remember no more? God says, if you repent of those things and do what I've asked you to do and walk in the light, God says, I'll forgive those things and I'll forget them. I'm persuaded that one of the reasons, there are many, but one of the reasons why God says, do not get into sin, Hiram, do not get into a lifestyle of sin. One of the reasons among the many is because Hiram, it's going to be harder for you to forgive yourself than it will be for me. You will not be able to forget as easily and as quickly as God does, but the New Testament demands that we try. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul told the Corinthians, you were drunkards, you were revilers, you were, some of you, guilty of homosexuality, you were all of these things, but you've been washed and sanctified and justified. Put those things out behind you. If you're going to press toward the goal, There are some things you've done that you're not proud of. You're not happy about them. You don't want to celebrate them and have a sin party and rehearse bad stories of things we've done in the past. But sometimes it gnaws at you. It's difficult to get over it. And Paul's saying, forget those things which are behind. But I submit to you, it's not just the good thing, the bad things that we need to forget. It's also some of the good. Paul did this in his ministry, and I believe we need to do it in ours. Paul practiced this sort of chosen forgetfulness concerning the good things that he had done. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Corinthians seemed to be struggling with this idea of preacheritis and who their favorite preacher was. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 16, I baptized Crispus and Gaius 
and the household of Stephanus, but besides that, I don't know who else I baptized. Paul's point is God didn't send him to be the one that actually administers the baptism, but he was to preach the gospel. And Paul didn't really keep a ledger of every good thing he had ever done. You know why? Because there was more good to be done. And so he forgot those things which are behind, even the good. Sometimes a Christian says, you know, I've read through the whole Bible and that's great, but I'm sure you need to read it again. Oh, I led five people to Christ last year, and that is great, but I'm sure there are five more people that need to know who Jesus is. Oh, I remember I used to teach Bible class every quarter. I I was so involved in it, and that's great. But I've never been to a congregation where they were overwhelmed with Bible class teachers to the point they didn't need anymore. We used to be busting at the seams. Sometimes we rehearse all of the good things we used to do, and those things are great in and of themselves. But Christianity involves us doing the best that we can for God every day. And to a certain degree, while we rejoice in the good that we've done for Jesus's name, we've got to forget those things which are behind lest we become distracted, even with past success, to the dereliction of duty that is due to God today. Paul says, forget the past. Paul knew that in order to be successful in pressing toward the goal, it involves this idea that every day I'm going to do what God would have me to do. If I fail God in the past, it does no good to dwell on it because his mercies are new every morning. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. If I've succeeded in the past, I must forget those things, too, because discipleship is a daily endeavor that must be engaged in every 24 hours. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me every single day. One man once said about success in sports, he said, success is not owned, it's rented, and the rent is due every day. Christianity demands that we engage in it. And in order to do so, we've got to forget what lies behind. That's not to say we won't reach a point in our lives where physically we're incapable of doing what we once could. And then our ministry shifts, and God understands that these bodies... Now, battered and bruised by sin and the frailties of this life, they will break down on us and our ministries will shift. But that's to say to those of us who still can and are able, we don't get to postpone the deeds that God has due now because of things we've done in the past. We don't get to say, God, you can't use me because, you know, I failed. I've had a bad life and I've done some things formally. Pressing toward the goal means having a short term memory concerning the past. And Paul tells the Philippians that's what he exercised and they need to exercise the same. Now, here's number three. If we would press toward the goal, we need a singular focus. Here's where I believe Paul is separated from everybody else in the New Testament. His ability to have a laser focus on what he wanted to accomplish and do it unlike anybody else. Would you notice what he says in verse 13? This one thing I do. Paul was focused. He had a singular laser focus on what he wanted to accomplish. And if we were pressed toward the goal, we need the same thing. Throughout the New Testament, Paul makes these statements about his whole life being bound up in service to Jesus. We sing this song. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. Paul would say, God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world, Galatians 6.14. Paul had a focus. 
And he, made, he managed to focus on that. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, Paul absorbed that and made that his life's mantra. And he had a singular focus. If we would press toward the goal, we need the very same thing. There's so many things that pull at us for our time and our attention. And there's so many things that are saying, put me first and I need to be first place. But Christianity is the only thing that should be in that spot in our lives. Paul had a focus on eternal things. And if we're going to be pleasing to God, if we were pressed toward the goal, we need to do the same. Don't get distracted. I know there are a lot of things clamoring for your time and for your attention, but press toward the goal anyway. Here's a question tonight. What is your passion? I know what you're supposed to say. You're a Christian at a, at a gospel meeting on a Tuesday night, but just think about it. What is your passion? There's some questions that we can pose to our own souls tonight that will help us to arrive at the answer. Regardless of what we say, our answers to these questions, these five questions, these questions have been asked in the business world. This isn't original with me, but you just write down these questions and think about your answer to these five questions. And it'll let you know what your passion is. Number one, what do I know a lot about? What do I know a lot about? Second Timothy 2.15 says, study or give every effort to present yourself approved unto God, a workman that... Must not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What I know a lot about, that's one indication of what my passion is, where I give my time and effort to be educated and learn about what's my passion, what do I know a lot about. Number two, what do I give my energy over to? Romans 12 and verse 1, Paul says, Present your body as a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service. We're to present our bodies because Christianity is going to require some of my energy, some of my efforts. What's my passion? What gets a lot of my energy? What do I work at? What do I try to advance? That'll let me know my passion. Question number three. You want to know your passion? What do I sacrifice my resources for? The New Testament doesn't lay down a percentage on Christian giving, but Paul uses terminology like this in 2 Corinthians 8.24. Show to the churches the proof of your love. The idea is prove it. And how would you prove it? By what you do. What do you spend your resources on? What do you sacrifice your resources for? That'll be an indication of what your passion is. Question number four, what's my passion? What will I stand up for when it's criticized? What will I stand up for when it's criticized? For Paul, Paul could say in Philippians 1 and verse 7, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. If anybody said anything about Christianity or Jesus Christ, Paul was willing to stand up and defend it. And then fifth and finally, what do I talk a lot about? 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul says, I believe and therefore we speak. We can't help it. It just burst out of Paul. You couldn't be around the Apostle Paul for too long without hearing something about Jesus Christ. Now, some of us do this little quiz and we find out, I didn't know it, but my passion is college football. My passion is hunting or shopping. Listen, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but would you notice something about anything else that you can put in the blank? They all have a season. We talk about college football season. We talk about political, the voting season. We talk about hunting season. They all have seasons, but what Christianity has that none of those others do, Christianity is to be our passion because it covers every season of life, every stage and age of life. It's supposed to be our passion. Paul says, this one thing I do, if I don't do anything else, I get Christianity right. And in doing that, I'll be the best that God wants me to be at everything else. I love Paul's forthrightness in verse 13. Paul didn't say he tried or anything like that. Paul said, this one thing I do. He actually accomplished it. In the end, the Bible only holds out the blessing to the doer. That's the only person that God promises to bless. 
God didn't promise to bless the attempters or the people that plan. You know, there are a lot of people that plan on being faithful Christians, and they really have good intentions. There are a lot of people that plan to be dedicated and diligent Bible students. I mean, they really plan on doing it. They just never get around to it. Paul said this one thing I do because you can. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. If any man's a hearer of the word and a doer, he's like a man. He beholds himself in a glass. He sees the celery in his teeth and he says, well, I'll get that out tomorrow. He just goes his way and forgets what type of person he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man and only this man, James 125, the doer will be blessed in what he does. This one thing I do. And then it's personal for Paul in verse 13. This one thing I do. Paul couldn't speak for Silas. He couldn't speak for Timothy. It's tempting to be a part of something where everybody else is so strong and we might think, well, that's me, but not necessarily. You know, you could stand in your garage for a long time. You wouldn't turn into a car just because you were there. It it, it wouldn't happen for you. And it's possible to be a part of a thriving and strong congregation that's doing everything that it can to the glory of God. And that's encouraging more about that in a moment. But that wouldn't mean necessarily that those things apply to me until I get some skin in the game, until I'm personally invested. And I can say with Paul, this one thing I do, it's not what they do at West Huntsville. I'm a part of this family as well. I'm a part of a ministry. I'm plugged in somewhere. And if I don't know where to go, I'm going to the elders to say, would you mind plugging me in somewhere? Because I want to be able to say this one thing I do. That's what Paul did. And it helped him to press toward the goal. Paul was focused. He had a laser focus and it helped him to be the person that he was. And that's what God wants for every one of us. This singular focus that says no matter what else goes on in the world, I'm going to dead sprint toward heaven and I won't let anything stop me. Christianity is often described as a race. It's the race that we run with patience, Hebrews 12 and verse 1. It's the race that we run with all of our might. Paul says, I don't run aimlessly, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. It's the race that we have to run. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 5, we compete according to the rules. And it's the race that we run looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. If you and I would press toward the goal, we need a singular focus. Now, here's number four. Pressing toward the goal involves following good examples. Would you notice verse 16 and verse 17 in Philippians 3? Paul says, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Paul has talked about himself up to verse 15. And now he says there are others. Verse 17, mark those which so walk as you have us for an example. Now, in the New Testament, there is occasion to mark false teachers. People that teach things that are contrary to the New Testament, people that introduce things into Christianity that corrupt the doctrine and the purity of the church. Paul would often say things like mark them. The old King James has or note them. Make sure you know who they are and stay far away from them. Second Thessalonians three and verse six, Paul says, if they don't follow these teachings, note that man and have nothing to do with them. Romans 16 and verse 17, Paul says, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary or different from what you've learned. Avoid those people. It's right to mark and note people that change Christianity, Christianity, that corrupt the church and that compromise the doctrine. But appreciate that Paul also says here, mark people that are doing the right thing. Make note of them and follow their example. 
You know, there are enough bad examples in the world. Paul says, find the good guys and follow them. Notice verse 18 and verse 19. These are the bad guys. Paul says, don't follow these folks. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. They mind earthly things. There's a right way to do Christianity and a wrong way. There are some people that if you follow them, you will end up further away from Jesus than you would have otherwise. Sometimes we're going somewhere. And there may be several of us. And somebody says, well, listen, you just follow me. I know the way. You don't need GPS. And guess what? 16 U-turns later, you find out that they've got some vague idea of where the place is, but they really don't have any clue. And so they're not a good guide, not for themselves or anybody else. Isaiah 9, 16, Isaiah said, the leaders of my people cause them to err, lead them astray. They don't know where they're going. They're unworthy guides for anybody else. False teachers in the first century, they came with lofty promises. They promise you liberty, but they themselves are the servants of corruption. Second Peter 2, 19. They can't guide themselves. Neither can they guide you. But there are people who can. And Paul says, when you find people like that, you mark them, you note them and you say, you know what? I want to be like her. I want to be like him. I want to follow their example. We live in an individualistic society. We live in a place where we're pretty independent. And the judgment will be independent. Nobody will be able to stand in for you. We'll all stand at the judgment seat of Christ for what we've done in our own bodies. That's true. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. But do not miss this, that nobody goes to heaven alone. Nobody goes to hell alone because we all wield an influence. We do. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 9 says two are better than one. They have a good reward for their labor. If one falls, another can lift them up. If one is cold, the other can make him warm. But woe to one who falls and is alone. You need help. And God in his kindness and in his benevolence has provided avenues to help us press toward the goal. The power of his word, his kind providence in our lives. And third, do not miss this, the people of God to help us get over. When you look around an auditorium like this one or anywhere where God's people are assembled and you see people, They've been Christians for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We're supposed to draw strength from that. When you see people who have buried their loved ones, buried their children, dealt with cancer, gone through hardship and difficulty, loss and heartache, stress and problems in marriages, rearing children, health, we're supposed to draw strength from that. Here's the wrong way to use the examples about us. To say about people that we know who have struggled and have pressed through, to look at their lives and say in turn, I don't know how they've done it. If that were me, I don't know how I would ever get through. That's the wrong way to do it. The response we should have is so-and-so has pressed through. They've been strong and they don't have any more of God's love than me. God doesn't love them any more than he loves me or any less. And if they made it through, so can I. We're to draw strength from one another's struggles and triumphs. That's why we walk through the valleys of life together. Paul says, I know in Philippi there are bad influences, but there are good influences, and you've got to be wise enough to mark the right ones and follow them. Look at 1 Thessalonians. Hold your hand in Philippians chapter 3 and just turn over quickly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and notice what Paul says about the Thessalonians and their relationship to his salvation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, In verse 8, Paul founded this congregation too in Acts 17. But in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 8, Paul, Silas, and Timothy who are involved in the composition of this letter, Paul says, now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. What is that all about? 
How can the Apostle Paul and his companions be benefited by the Thessalonians? Surely Paul's pressing toward the goal on his own. He is. But there is something about the Thessalonians' perseverance that encourages Paul because we all need it. Now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord, when we hear good news about you. When Timothy brought us the good report back, it was a shot in the arm for us. And we pressed toward the goal. If Paul needed it, we're not above it. One of the things that wearies many Christians is they believe they're in the battle all by themselves. The Bible assures us we're not. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we often focus on the part of this passage which says God makes a way of escape, but don't miss the first part. There is no temptation that's overtaking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape. One of the ways of escape is your temptation is not uncommon to other people. You can go back and study the lives of people in scripture, but you can study the lives of people in your company and learn that you can't overcome. It's a shame that we know 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 better than verse 9. Both are important. But in verse 8, Peter says, be sober, be vigilant. Your enemy, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. And then in verse 9, Peter says, who you resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same conflicts are being accomplished by your brethren in the world. Peter says the devil wants to devour you, but it's not just you. It's all Christians everywhere. And you can band together and overcome. Some Christians think it's just their family that has problems. Read the book of Genesis, right? Their temptation is stronger than everybody else's. They're the devil's favorite punching bag and God's black sheep. Listen, we shouldn't give ourselves too much credit. If we would press toward the goal, we've got to find other good examples and say, you know what? I want to go to heaven. They want to go to heaven. and I want to learn from them. I want to walk in the light just like they do and learn from them. Paul says, I'm an example, but he's not the only one. In chapter two, he mentions Jesus himself, Timothy, and even Epaphroditus. Paul is saying, take your pick. You have the Christ, an apostle, a preacher, and one of your own, Epaphroditus. Any one of these men will be an example to help you if you would let them. Because you're all in the same race, trying to do the very same thing. Now, here's the fifth and final point tonight. If we were pressed toward the goal, We simply must focus on the goal. In verse 20, he says, our citizenship, that's the old King James, our conversation, the old King James has, our citizenship is in heaven, from where also we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body or our lowly body, and it'll be fashioned like his glorious body, according to the working by which he's able to subdue all things to himself. Paul says, focus on the goal. Notice the contrast between those in 18 and 19, their minds on earthly things. And then Paul says, you set your mind in verse 20 on heavenly things. There's a difference. Your citizenship's in heaven. The people in Philippi would have readily resonated with Paul's words because Philippi was a Roman colony. They weren't in Rome, but they viewed themselves as Romans. They took pride in their Roman citizenship. Their government was styled like Rome. They spoke Latin. They wore Roman clothes. And if anybody said anything to a Philippian, not just in the church, but just in Philippi in general, they would boast in their Roman citizenship. But Paul says, no, your real citizenship is in heaven. That is to say, while you're on earth as a Christian, look, congregations of churches of Christ, we're heavenly colonies, but our our home is not here. Our citizenship is ultimately in heaven with God himself. And we're to press toward that goal and see ourselves that way. Our congregations, our families are to be little slices of heaven on earth, but ultimately... 
We plan to go to heaven with God. The goal of the Christian life is to live our lives to the glory of God. And when it's all said and done, go to glory with God. That's what we want to do. Paul says your citizenship's in heaven. Focus your energies and your efforts toward that end. Focus on the goal. We sing that song by Albert Brumley. He wrote it in 1937. This world is not my home, but the reality is this world is not anybody's home. Second Peter three and verse 10 says nobody gets to stay. The world will be set on fire. And then we'll always be with the Lord. First Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. Focus on the goal and press toward it. C.S. Lewis wasn't right about everything, but he was right about this. He said creatures are not made with desires that don't exist to be fulfilled. A duckling desires to swim. There's a such thing as water. You get tired. There's a such thing as sleep that exists. You get hungry. God's created food. But if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable conclusion is I was made for another world. And that's what's in the human heart. We long for another world. And Paul says your citizenship is not here. This world's not our home. Lay up not for yourselves treasures on earth. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Press toward the goal. It won't always be easy, but it'll always be worth it. Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Christianity has been tried and found difficult and then left untried. People say, I want to be a Christian. I've tried that before. It doesn't pay. No, it's difficult. It's costly. And many people don't want to pay the price. Paul's point is, pay it because it's worth it. Our hope's in heaven, Colossians 1 and verse 5. Our inheritance is there, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. And one day we will be there if we don't give up. People have talked for a long time about the benefits of working for Google and the way that the company pays, the on-site haircuts, the gourmet lunches, and all the great things that will happen if you work for Google. But recently there's been something said about what's supposedly their greatest benefit, And it's something that they call death benefits. If you work for Google and you die, your spouse gets 50% of your salary over the next decade. And what's more, there's no tenure sort of limitations on this. So Google's more than 114,000 employees all qualify for the benefits. But Would you notice what Paul says in Philippians 3.21? Google says, if you serve us, if you work for us, we've got good benefits. Paul says, if you work for the Lord and serve God, God has a new body ready for you and for me. He'll change this lowly body and it'll be fashioned like his glorious body. These bodies, we can use them in service to God. Don't hold back. That's Paul's point. Don't say, well, if I give my all to God, what's going to happen to this body? Exactly what you think. It'll wear down. It'll break down. It's going to do that. But he'll change this lowly body. It'll be fashioned like his glorious body. It is sown in corruption. It'll be raised incorruptible. It is sown in weakness. It'll be raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it'll be raised a spiritual body. And then we'll be like him and we'll finally be fit for the heavenly dwelling place that our presently bodies are unqualified to enter in. Paul says you'll be different. It'll be glorious. It'll be great. Press toward the goal. The book of Philippians is a book to encourage Christians. Paul wrote it to encourage. He told them to rejoice in chapter four. He thanked God every time he remembered them, chapter one and verse three. But in chapter three, Paul says, don't forget the goal. Don't get distracted. I know there's a lot of noise in your world. I know there are a lot of things happening. I know you're busy. But Jesus really is worth your everything. 
someone said about idols, that idols in the beginning, they promise everything, but in the end, they deliver nothing. Jesus, he says, give me everything. And in the end, I'll give you far more than you could have ever asked for. Let us press toward the goal with the full assurance that our citizenship is in heaven and from heaven we await our Savior who will not only show us his glory, but who allow us to share in it in the end. The hardest part about Christianity is we must do well until we hear well done. That's what God tells us to do, but it's worth it. Maybe tonight you're ready to begin the Christian race, ready to begin your journey toward heaven by believing, just like Paul did, that Jesus is the Son of God, turning from sin and being immersed in water, to have your sins forgiven. That's how the Bible says that Christians are made, by the grace of God, through faith. And if you want to do that tonight, if you've studied with somebody, we'd be happy to assist you. Maybe you're not ready for that, but you'd love to study the Bible with us. We'd be happy to do that with you as well. If we can pray with you or pray for you. As we talked about in the lesson tonight, we want to help one another to get to heaven. And if we can help you in any way, if this is your invitation, come now as together we stand and as we sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.